0: Hello and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the psychology and mental health podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. My name's John McGowan and I'm a psychologist in the centre. Today I'm in the slightly odd position of introducing myself. As some of you may know, we recently moved from our long-term base in the Kent countryside into a new home in in central Tunbridge Wells. One of the benefits of this is that when we have lectures, rather than simply talking to each other, we can open them to the public more easily. Our first lecture of this sort was in December 2017, when I talked about something called the Zero Suicide Initiative. This is a suicide prevention strategy originating in Detroit in the US. As you'll see from the title of this edition, while I have some positive things to say about this initiative, I also have some reservations, some fairly deep ones about where it might lead. After the talk, there's some group discussion, which has also been recorded. So without further ado, it's over to me. Okay. Zero suicide—an idea whose time has not and should not come. Okay. Re- let's um, just think about what we're talking about here. First of all, we're talking about suicide. This is just a fairly standard uh, definition: the act or instance of taking one's own life voluntarily and intentionally. And uh, a lot of uh, ink and a lot of passion has been expended over those words—voluntarily and intentionally. I don't want to get into that now. We might perhaps get into it in the questioning. I'm not. I'm not sure. Give us an idea of the kind of scale of what we're talking about. Um- in 2016, there were 5,668 suicides registered. Preponderance of men, um, <laughs> far more men than women. This is a slight decline, and it's part of a slightly broader decline, as I'll show you in, in a minute, uh, and also just focusing in on the fact that the, uh, particularly men in the age group in, the, in their early 40s have the highest kind of age-specific suicide rate, and there's been a great deal of thought given and analysis given as to why that should be particularly so issues like unemployment employment role of men, etc etc just to just represent that graphically as you can see this is uh, suicide rates since the 1980s and as you can see, there's a kind of drift down the top line is men, uh, the middle line is everyone, and the bottom line is, uh, the bottom line is women. And there's been an overall kind of drift, uh, drift down in, in, in suicide rates. This doesn't take account of attempted suicides insofar as you can define those and really pin them down accurately. Again, that's quite a significant measurement issue as to what was a suicide, what was the intention, uh, what was self-harm. Uh, these things are not necessarily easy to pin down. Okay, so uh, just thinking uh, initially about how we address suicide as a society, I'm really thinking as a society, as a health service here. I it think it's widely perceived as a very significant problem. You don't have to go far before you see people really talking about what a significant problem uh, these rates are, and it is very high up the mental health agenda at present and uh, many counties in Britain have a multidisciplinary suicide prevention group there's one in Kent uh, they do some quite interesting work I haven't managed to get to a meeting yet but I do read their minutes pretty assiduously and lots of very interesting things get discussed at that group and there's some really really interesting contributions from uh, it really makes me think that we need to talk to each other as different professionals the police health services etc there's just so much kind of in those conversations now the current are sort of lodestone really of how we look at suicide in in england and the similar uh, documents in scotland is this policy from 2012 preventing suicide in england now i don't necessarily propose to get into that in detail here though a few of the headline uh, takeaways here are reducing uh, the risk in high-risk groups, bringing in a mental health frame around specific groups, uh, access to means, better information for those bereaved and affected, media messages, and supporting research. So not hugely unexpected uh, focuses. Some of them are quite ambitious. I just, without really commenting on it, I just would just like to say this word, prevention, The policy is called prevention of suicide. It's not called good decision-making around suicide or compassionate responses around suicide or anything else. It's called prevention. And I think that that emphasis really shapes the context that we're in. And one of my questions is, is that always in a good way? I'm not suggesting that it's entirely in a bad way, but I just want—I partly want to pose the question, does this take us in a helpful direction? Just a quick uh, nod uh, to this policy. Again, it's not something I'm going to get into in detail as this is a psychological training course. The British Psychological Society also has a policy on this. one of our first year team policy review groups are appraising this for their their team policy review exercise. And there's some pretty interesting and substantial people being involved in in this. It does at least start with the word understanding rather than uh, prevention, but understanding and preventing suicide, the psychological perspective. And it starts with the word suicide is preventable and it's unacceptable that 6,188 people died by suicide in the UK in 2015. So it's fairly clear what the kind of direction of that policy is I think from that first sentence. Okay so just today what I'm going to be talking about I'm going to think a bit about this emphasis on prevention and highlight a particular preventive approach termed zero suicide quite an ambitious preventive approach um, formally termed zero suicide. Try and think about some of the benefits of it And some of the problems with it and with a strongly preventive stance more generally okay quick note on history as we go on I think I mean there's a lot this is obviously suicide has been an issue that's provoked a lot of passions throughout throughout history the two broad traditions I think that I wanted to kind of connect to traditions of thinking and response that I wanted to connect to Were these, I mean, I'm aware that it's much more complicated than this, but one, I suppose, a general direction of thinking that suicide is a wrong in some way, and the other one that it is a right in the sense of a human. Right, and okay. I'm aware that those are quite polarised. Um, that's quite a polarised and, s- and simple way of uh, describing these positions. But this, I think, uh, there, the these kind of broad traditions, I think, do really influence our thinking in various ways, even today. So, suicides are wrong. This is a picture of Thomas Aquinas. I remember seeing this picture as a child and thinking he had a rather morally uncompromising look. Um, and certainly a great sort of theologian and um, foundational thinker in Christianity, his um, monograph *Summa Theologica*. I mean, it really does set the, the framework for suicide as a sinful, as a sinful act um, within the, the kind of Western Christian tradition. And a little bit later on in history, G.K. GK Chesterton, who was also writing from quite a, a, a Christian perspective, I don't want to say that that is necessarily. Uh, prompted this but a very very strong statement uh, which i thought was worth repeating here not only is suicide a sin it is the sin it is the ultimate and absolute evil so you know not much ambiguity about his position on suicide there and also just to note about the illegality of uh, suicidal acts and suicide in the uk until 1961 so i was uh, just checking that i was Relatively surprised uh, at how late that was, though obviously a lot of quite significant laws around choice and uh, choice and behavior did change in the 1960s in britain just a little note on the sort of other side of the thinking suicide is a human right I and mean, i think there's been a lot of different forms of thinking about this in different uh, places and times in history um, and more rights-based forms of thinking and even some history of suicide as a as a heroic act uh, that's a picture of a samurai There, I'm thinking also as well as aspects of Japanese tradition, ancient Greek tradition, Socrates and the hemlock. So in some sense it being framed quite differently. I think at the moment we do have a kind of right to die movement, predominantly around physical health conditions. And... Our current legal framework, uh, there may be people here who know a great deal more about that than me, but it does strike me that we're in a kind of more tolerant position, a kind of a fudge at the moment legally in the UK, in the sense that we're not actually actively encouraging people to, or legislating around people, you know, ending their own lives in these very, very difficult circumstances, but we're kind of allowing them to do so, so you can go off to, if you're terminally ill with no prospect of recovery, we can go off to Dignitas. And you know our thinking's a wee bit confused. I mean it came up in my own life recently a uh, an elderly um slightly more distant member of my family who was elder, elderly and quite ill was kind of eschewing treatment at that, at this point for cancer because it felt very, very invasive and they wanted quality of life with the time that they had left and broadly, nobody seemed to have a problem with that, um, which was in some indirect way electing to you know and they weren't actively. Um, ending their life at that point, but they were doing so in some way, and everyone seemed to perceive that as very brave. Now, uh, in some sense, the more things change, the more they stay the same, really. This is a quote from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Throughout history, suicide has evoked an astonishingly wide range of reactions, bafflement, dismissal, heroic glorification, sympathy, anger, moral or religious condemnation, but it has never uncontroversial and i think it's worth trying to hold people's very different and often incredibly strong and passionately held reactions in mind during what follows (coughs) okay so zero suicide getting to the, the meat of the issue what is it i think basically the spirit of zero suicide can be summed up in this quote one life lost is one too many i think that pretty much covers it actually in terms of the overall ethos i'll say a bit more detail i mean this is a uh Facing page from the Guardian, a bold new fight. So there's something you know ambitious, brave about it. You know, really trying to address something uh, that she, you know that I think is broadly perceived as you know shouldn't happen. We shouldn't let it happen. So some quotes. I'll just pick out a few of these. Um, the foundational belief is that suicide deaths for individuals under care within health and behavioural health systems are preventable. So suicide is, bas- is basically preventable. And that anything short of zero suicide is unacceptable in a caring system or a caring environment, uh, patient safety and a belief I think that people which you know may have some merit to it that people can fall through cracks in fragmented and sometimes distracted systems, and that sometimes suicides result from this, or in fact they seem to be implying that you know more than sometimes. Some relief in reading this. The challenge of this is not to be borne solely by those in providing clinical care, as it's a massively ambitious agenda. I think there's a bit of relief in that, and uh, but also drawing in wider systems, broader community, especially suicide attempt survivors, family members, policymakers, and researchers. So those are some quotes from the U.S. the U.S. version of their website. There are some similar sentiments expressed. Merseyside, NHS Trust in Merseyside is is um, adhering to this and there's some very similar material on their website okay and some of the things that seem really positive to me there is something here that feels quite positive about really aiming to accept responsibility for people you know for giving people what they need in a time of crisis and that feels to me to be something that we could sometimes think about a bit more really in health services really how can, how can we feel responsible as a society for giving people what they really need? Very focused on staff training and healthcare resources, lots of pleas for more resources, though around what is another question. It's quite rigorous and I think this is something that we really do try and uh, encourage with our approach here, quite rigorous in terms of thinking about people, understanding people, real emphasis on good care and going beyond care systems, public campaigns, awareness of resources, nobody left behind, everyone has a safety plan, There's also some emphasis on public health. I'm thinking back to the example of town gas, which was the old kind of gas that was very toxic. Um, We don't have that now. Um, We have gas that, you know, is not poisonous that comes through our cookers. But town gas, which was derived from coal, was very toxic. And an emphasis on things like, uh, you know, access to you know, potentially dangerous or poisonous substances. I'm not saying this comes out of zero suicide, but those of you who have young children will probably have had the experience of trying to give them Calpol, liquid paracetamol, and get it out of the bottle into a spoon, and it is absolutely, the neck of the bottle is so narrow, it's absolutely impossible even to kind of give them a spoon, and that is, you know, those kind of small things are about, you know, things like access, I mean, paracetamol is pretty toxic, so it those kinds of things are i think part of the you know a preventive agenda and also i think admirably some knowledge of some acknowledgement of wider social forces playing a role in equality unemployment gender roles thing, things like that and i think these things seem quite to me anyway these things seem very positive aspects of this approach but and there is a but or there would be no talk I think there are concerns and these are not just concerns being expressed by me they're being concerns expressed by a range of people i've encountered and the concerns i think flow around two areas one is achievability how achievable is it to get to a point where suicide is so minimal that you're effectively considering it zero is that real and the other one is about the desirability of trying and i think more of what i'll focus on is the second one the desirability of trying okay first of all my kind of blank thoughts on these things, the Malcolm Gladwell, blink, the first things that came into my mind is complete can can preventability. Is there any evidence for that in any society at any point in human history? Is there any evidence that we can completely eradicate suicide? I, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any. And also, I suppose, other things that kind of flowed through my mind straight away are that the vast majority of people who kill themselves never really come anywhere near mental health services at all. Another thing I suppose that... Um, And that's that's fairly steady. Estimates vary, but it's fairly steady. Another thing that um, comes up for me is that suicide is really not that easy to predict. I think sometimes working in health services, there can be a strong expectation that you can just pull out your crystal ball and see what someone is going to do. And that feels like a really pressurising assumption. Uh, I'll link to some of these things uh, when I put this up on our website. But this was the thing I linked to. There was a paper from the BMJ last year really calling out the notion of predictability, and also um, this idea of falling through the cracks. Sometimes it's described to me as defeatism. You know, defeatism on services. You know, we're letting people die because we're pessimistic and defeated, or we're not coordinating properly. Maybe the case, but not always. And maybe that judgment of falling through the cracks. You know, one person's falling through the cracks might be another person's respect for choice. I mean, it's it's my point is is it subjective? Appraisal, quite a subjective appraisal. So those are the first things that kind of flowed through my mind. Going to this question of achievability directly, there seem to be really, really mixed expectations on this, even among advocates of this approach. I've certainly read things people say, well, no one really believes that zero is achievable, but we should try. It's really important that we try. So is it possible or is it unrealistic? Now, the Henry Ford Clinic in Detroit, who are pioneers of this approach, they advertise an 80% reduction. In suicides there's a there's few problems with that figure um ian marsh our colleague down in canterbury I was talking to him about this. He's very knowledgeable about these errors, and he pointed out, he reminded me that actually these are really low-frequency events, so actually you really need quite a long period of time to, to decide if you're going to get a change in rates, and you can't extrapolate from small figures. Also, where um, one of Ian's concerns, I think that he, he has uh, been pu- quite public about, is the idea that sometimes when you reduce suicides in healthcare settings, it simply transfers the problem out- outside. You reduce things by you know, things like ligature points and things like that, it doesn't necessarily make the problem go away. I suppose the the big question I have around achievability is if you're just looking at suicide rates, that's only one measure. That's only one measure. And there may be many, many other measures flowing out of something like this that could be important to consider. And that really brings us on to this issue of desirability. Surely it's desirable to try, isn't it? This is a a quote from someone on Twitter. As the mother of a daughter lost to suicide in 2015, the only relevant statistic is the tragic loss of human life. Every life lost is is a travesty. So really, really clear statement, and I can only imagine the pain. Um, that that person is, is experiencing and I can really see clearly how they got there but I also don't think that that is the only relevant statistic even if you could achieve it. I think there are lots and lots of other parameters that are really really important to think about. You know I have a lot of anxieties about that goal and that goal framed in that way. Okay and the anxieties really I think pivot around Cautious practice, but perhaps cautious practice kind of blending into something worse or something more damaging. So cautious practice, preventive practice. If something is perceived as preventable, there's an onus on, onus on us to you know, prevent it. So if it's preventable, somebody should be preventing it. And how do we do that, especially given the kind of unpredictability issue that, you know, that we're facing? And I suppose one of the things I start to worry about is kind of think like a kind of panicky response. Oh, go and see your GP, hospital, panic rather than a meaningful plan to help. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Increased mental health services involvement, is that a good thing, a bad thing? It may be a good thing, but actually, if you're thinking about it, it may not necessarily be the best thing. There can be downsides to that too. Low threshold hospitalisation, because people are worried about risk, is hospital going to be good or bad? Delayed discharges from hospital in the face of risks and increased use of compulsory powers, such as the Mental Health Act. And one of the stated reasons for reviewing the Mental Health Act at the moment, the Prime Minister, some of you may have missed it, the Prime Minister in her speech at the Tory party conference announced a really significant review of the Mental Health Act. And one of the primary drivers for that is that the tensions are perceived widely to be going up and to be too high. Just to be absolutely clear, I'm not saying any of those are explicitly advocated advocated by a zero suicide approach but I think the danger is of creating a climate where some where such things are more lightly simply by saying something is preventable and is unacceptable and clinical experience not just mine and research I think bears me out in this regard okay here's just a few conversations I've had over the years working in services and some of them come from my personal life as well these are not direct quotes but you know i've had variations on uh, most of these conversations more than once when i worked in i worked in mental health wards for a number of years and i lost count of the number of times i had this conversation x was at risk of harming themselves so we've had them admitted to which the question was so we can do what what was your vision for what we we're going to do so no plan just everyone can't bear the risk get them into hospital keep them safe thinking, is hospital going to be good for this person? Is it going to be bad for this person? You know, it, wasn't, it was hard to think about those kind of things. Similarly, X has confessed to suicide, suicide, suicidal ideation. Contact the GP. The GP is going to say, helpful, you know, there needs to be more thinking. Other things that we said, we can't discharge because I don't want to be in the front page of the local paper when they kill themselves. Why don't you take away patients' laces? That was one that I heard more than once over the years. The answer was because this is an attempt to provide a caring environment that provides people with some dignity, really. Uh, we can't chance X going out, so kind of curtailment of liberties. This person is depressed and can't make a reasonable decision. So they can make a decision, but we're basically deciding that the decision isn't reasonable or that the responsibility is diminished. Kind of a consequence of the Mental Health Act, which overrides capacity judgments. And one directly to me, X can meet with you and work on eliminating suicidal thoughts come to that again so is this preventive practice or what is often referred to as defensive practice are we sure that hospitalization detention don't have negative effects i really don't think we're sure about that at all or unintended consequences especially when they're driven by risk rather than a meaningful therapeutic plan what am i thinking about i'm thinking about things like the trauma of being sectioned or pulled into hospital are we doing risk assessment instead of supporting People. Now, actually, the zero suicide approach itself uh, has a much greater emphasis on good care rather than kind of risk assessment. So I really give them some credit for that. Something that used to bother me a tremendous amount when I worked in wards was bringing people into hospital and there was a loss of independence and their own skills to manage themselves. That felt like a huge problem uh, that people would just become sort of pulled into hospital, into a medical frame. And many of the things that helped... Hold, hold them together, glue them together, would just kind of get eroded. And also their friends and family as well. And it felt that there were very negative effects, I think very mixed effects potentially, of taking people into a medicalised framework. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I'm not totally against it, but is it what we want to do? Always? Assume that something can be taken into a medicalised framework. I think for many people in this room, uh, there may be an issue around professionals feeling a really great, perhaps really unrealistic, sense of responsibility for somebody else's life and death. That is a real pressure, particularly in a context of unpredictability. Again, the kind of pressure on medical professionals, I think, can be absolutely enormous on psychologists, on other health professionals, particularly in mental health. Issues around loss of rights and dignity of choice, independence. And I think all of that coming together in some ways to erode space for engagement with somebody, help, understanding and a kind of recovery space and moving into a kind of defensive space, really. I'll say a bit more about what I mean about that. Often in health environments, you, you hear talk about having a, a positive risk, the notion that how can you help somebody reconnect with important things that will help their recovery, help them feel better, bring them back into contact with things that are good and positive for them. But actually, it's risky to do so. It's risk, you're taking a risk by doing so. But how caring is an environment when it's so focused on risk minimization that you can't do that or that you feel incredibly circumscribed about doing that? how can you help a person be responsible for their own life and choices? Now, I don't want to think this is just anecdotal stuff that I'm talking about because I do think that uh, there, uh, there is research to back this up. I just want to highlight a couple of um, research projects that were completed here uh, two years ago, one by Sarah Crowley and the other one by Lucy Nalatambi. And again, a will link to these. I think they're really, really worth looking at and particularly what the professionals interviewed them said. And Sarah's one, just the, the force that, it came th- that came through of that, how difficult it was to not feel su- an almost paralysing weight of responsibility and how difficult it was being in a service to tolerate uncertainty uh, when you were working with somebody who was at risk. And similarly in Lucy's project, you know, just how easily you can move into work that is highly, highly risk averse, leaving the person really unheard and considered as having diminished responsibility. So conversations that I've had certainly about suicide prevention and about zero suicide, people say, Oh, it's not about defensive practices. I really feel skeptical at those moments that that it really is not about defensive practices. Because it feels to me that it creates a climate, that that sense of preventability and unacceptability, just by its very nature, creates a climate that is about defensive practice. Anne roped me into a debate on Twitter, as I said, and there were many interesting comments made of that on all sides of it. It was very, I don't know whether to thank you or not, it was so, it was so, um, full on but this was one I mean, there's something called end medical abuse so they're kind of you know declaring their colors in that name i'm not sure i always agree with everything but they, they made a point that i thought was really interesting surviving trauma is about choice control and the injury being recognized all things mental health services are structurally designed to avoid doing are they structurally avi- designed to avoid doing that Uh, Maybe not always. Sometimes I think they would be, if you really are around a frame of prevention of action, then they are structurally designed to avoid doing those things. Now, just something particularly about psychological contact with people. Again, obviously, this is a psychological training centre. And it occurs to me that this also intersects with something that's a really fundamental component of psychological work, because psychological approaches are quite a big part of uh, a zero suicide framework. But it seems to me that something so foundational uh, about psychological work is that you're deciding the goal or the focus with somebody, trying to come around their concerns and what's most alive for them and, and trying to bring in what they need and bring that together with the understanding or help that you can offer. So it's a collaborative process. But my crucial point is, it can't really be imposed from the outside. It doesn't really feel, to, it feels that like something gets changed by that imposing it from the outside. So what's it like? Some people in this room may have been asked to provide a, a psychotherapy of some sort, whatever the model, aimed at medication compliance or getting back to work or, in fact, risk reduction. Something's being dictated from the outside and it f- seems to me that there's a fundamental difference between meeting someone in the moment to t- really try and serve what's important for them. As opposed to an externally imposed goal and i think it positions your stance something like this this is somebody called dr alice coking who i think is extremely sincerely intentioned a liaison psychiatrist and a very very prominent public advocate of zero suicide and this is what she says about how she approaches people i approach people in suicidal distress with the intent to listen engage and thinking how can i support you not to want to end your life today What can I do to help you to choose to live and stay safe today, tomorrow, next week and next month? And there's something I say, I think, incredibly good and well-intentioned about that. But also, you know what, it kind of fills me with unease. And I'll, I'll tell you why. It also allows me to bring in somebody called Fiona Malpass, who's a speaker and writer activist who writes a lot from personal experience, but I think is one of the clearest thinkers I've encountered recently, and she's coming here to teach, I'm very pleased to say, in January. But one of the things that she's quite big on is calling out the assumptions that people make about um, in health services when they encounter this kind of distress, that, that mental health treatments will be helpful, that people should want to live that talking to somebody is useful, is it? Is it not? That wanting to die is wrong or in some other way irrational. I think maybe not so much in Alice Cole King's statement, but that suicidality is part of a mental illness. That sometimes comes in. Is that a good way of approaching things or not? And that there's a binary of wanting to live and wanting to die. That wanting to, you know, not to live necessarily means wanting to die. She, if you ever get a chance to see her speak, she's a very interesting speaker. And I think that Some of her ideas about different perspectives that I find quite appealing, that just allowing this freedom to think about what's in your mind or even planning a suicide, she talked quite movingly about how that can be a way of coping for some people, including for her. And that questioning the purpose of life, contemplating death, that's maybe not so unusual. A philosophical, spiritual quest that may happen for all of us at some points in our life can be a response to oppression, marginalization, or other difficult life circumstances, need for change and opportunity for growth. But actually thinking in this way can be a positive thing, helping you feel more in touch with life through contemplating or desiring death. And none of these things are said lightly. I think all of these things come out from quite thought through personal experience. And I find myself returning to them again and again, and thinking about what they mean. Somebody else who comes up when you have conversations about this is somebody called David Webb and uh, it's a book called Thinking About Suicide again there's a kind of user perspective in it but it's so much more than that in terms of the aggregation of different contributions and thoughts from so many different people. But this quote on his website, and I, I, again, I do suggest checking this out. This book invites you to honour and respect your thinking about suicide as real, legitimate and important. I denied my own suicidality for so long, but suppressing these feelings ultimately did not work. So please honour this agonising struggle. And then with the respect for yourself that this struggle deserves, talk about it. So something about a more open space to talk and to have the freedom to talk and think. And i found that profoundly moving actually, just think turning that over. I think it, it would be nice to get in a mention of Rufus May actually known to many of us in this room who I think o- often has some very valuable things to contribute in these areas and this was some material for a talk he was giving about safe spaces safe spaces to kind of talk i think largely in the way that david webb was talking about and the strap line for it here or the the blurb for it was you know we don't often create spaces where we can talk freely about the temptation to end it all but it's a consideration many of us will have at some point in our lives so how do we do that how do we have a space where people can be free to talk about what to talk in the way that they may need to. And I suppose that's where I start to worry about this, you know, going in with the expectation, how can I support you not to want to end your life and prescribing things in that way? And my answer to that tweet, which I blocked out the first time, was just, why not? How can I help? How can I help you? Rather than, how can I stop you? Now, I've discussed this many, many times over the years. I said, recently I had a discussion on Twitter, and I'll quote... Um, I'll I'll give you some direct quotes for that. But it's something I've talked about many, many times over the years with different people. And I think it's just worth... I I do want to have some of those reactions here, particularly the ones who disagree with me, because I can encounter people who kind of agree with some of the things that I've been saying about that. But I've often found myself drawn a little bit more to what's different about people who really, really disagree with me um, about these concerns. Now, this was one uh, from Twitter quite recently. Uh, somebody saying, "I encourage folks to be critical of zero suicide, but first learn more about it." It's a really interesting place to start a discussion, and it's come up more than once in discussing suicide prevention. Well, you don't know. Go and find out. Go and do the training. Well, in actual fact, you know, I've got quite a lot of experience both personally and professionally on this, and that doesn't, you know, just because I haven't done the training doesn't mean that my concerns aren't valid. But it's. It, I mean, maybe people are feeling very misunderstood with this. I'm sure they get plenty of people just reacting to the name rather than looking at the details. So I I am sympathetic to that. But it's just a weird way to start a discussion We'll go off and know about what I'm talking about and then come back and I'll talk to you. Some other things uh, that come up. This was an interesting quote. You think zero suicide is unacceptable. What number are you okay with? kind of missing the point really of the dangers of a a preventive or controlling stance similarly should we aim for 67 should we aim for 67 suicides same same point a point that some people have been quite keen to make to me is it's not about services suicide isn't zero suicide not about services Yes, it is. It is about services. It may be about more than services, but it is about services. I think maybe they mean it's about more than services. Sometimes I think people don't see any conflict between you know positive risk or compassionate spaces to talk and a very strongly held prevention agenda. I do, actually, I do see a contradiction there. And sometimes it feels that there's different purposes at play. A point that's been made to me a number of times over the years, actually, is the notion of a public context, publicly funded context versus other contexts, that you have to behave in different ways and invoke safeguarding procedures in different ways if you're working in the public sector than, say, if you're working in the Samaritans and you can have a more open conversation and just be with people where they are without... Um, you know, quite a strong sense that you have to act in particular ways. Whether that should be true of a public context or not is another question, but I do think there's a reality to that. It's also been pointed out, particularly in relation to zero suicide, that it has a no-blame ethos. And I, can't, I, I'm, I think those words are really cheap, actually. I think those words are really, really cheap, because if you're saying that something's unacceptable and preventable, there is going to be blame, rightly or wrongly. And you know what? Actually, sometimes people in services are to blame for being negligent or doing things wrong. So what are you going to do then? It feels to me that just saying that is a way of just trying to kind of wipe away a world of complexity around the notion of how we uh, would hold blame and responsibility. And also, simile. something that does feel a bit like playing with words a little bit is saying that it's different from zero tolerance. You know, I think people are trying to distinguish it from zero tolerance around violence. And it's something about this no blame kind of ethos. But again, it feels like just kind of playing around with words and phrases a little bit because it does feel that there's a difficulty in tolerating something within this and if saying something's unacceptable doesn't feel a million miles away from not being able to tolerate it. And it feels to me, just come, we're coming more towards the end, the heart of the difference, I think. And some of the more thoughtful uh, conversations I've had about this, I think this really seems to be the central issue. The advocates highlight zero suicide leading to a much broader and creative take, really bold and ambitious. You know, fighting pessimism, fighting defeatism and setting that against you know, someone like me and my fears of a more defensive, controlling and untherapeutic environment. But I think the absolute number of it is there's a genuine difficulty in believing that those more defen- defensive practices will occur in this context. You know, genuinely say, well, I can see suicide rates, but I can't see those other things. So, you know, I won't, you know, genuine difficulty in believing. And I'm afraid I don't have any difficulty in believing that such defensive and damaging practices will, will occur. I kind of wish I could, actually, in some ways, but I really don't. It's just a really, really different perception of the potential, uh, the likelihood of potential downsides. Really, It's a very, very different take, and I think that's kind of the heart of the difference, really. I mean, you get the odd person who just can't see the concerns at all. I mean, that's rare. I think, you know, oh, why wouldn't you do it? But in this case, I think it's something about the perce- perceptions of potential downsides. So the two broad traditions. The one on rights, I think also there's something about responsibilities and... I suppose, as you've worked out, my kind of base position on this is something about the state or the structures of our state and our community and our collective, maybe emphasising a bit more about rights, rather than always stepping in and trying to control. However, that is absolutely not the same thing as just saying to somebody, "It's your right," and then just not asking anymore. Nothing could be further from my mind or from the truth. And I think, I mean, certainly, I had this conversation with Fiona Malpas, who I mentioned uh, the other day, and she was saying that's just as unhelpful. You know, that's just as unhelpful. You know, it's your right. Off you go. You know, it's totally your call. Absolutely not. I think that for health professionals, there's not something about simply predicting, which is difficult, but really genuinely about listening, developing understanding, really engaging with people, not being afraid to explore these very important issues, and that being the basis of help, and also addressing issues like capacity and responsibility, but crucially, predicated on helping someone rather than stopping something, and that is the difference and that feels to me to be not a trivial difference. Really, and I think that uh, one of the things I'm struck by is that we do seem to find it a little bit easier, at least though not always easy, to have these conversations in the context of physical health rather than mental, rather than mental health. I say we're we're in a fudge as a society, and we have a lot of different views about it, but it seems to be a slightly more straightforward conversation. Uh, The notion of a wrong, I'm certainly not saying that assertive suicide prevention or zero suicide is the same as uh, you know sin or illegality, I think that uh, if I said that, people who advocate these things may be justifiably horrified, but perhaps it is something, it it has a family resemblance to these positions or is in the lineage of these positions in that it captures something about the difficulty of tolerating suicide without feeling that you've done absolutely everything you can to stop it. And for some people, I think genuinely, that, you know, we must stop suicide or must aim to stop suicide is for them their only reasonable and ethical starting point. And you know what? I think it is an absolutely massive deal and they're saying something that's really important. And it's really important to not minimize that because we're really talking about something enormous and tragic and so is the suffering that may lead to it. So but I can while I can really respect that feeling I think the implications of a stance strongly aimed at prevention remain and I and many others I think, I'm not just speaking for myself, I really can't ignore them and I suppose it ultimately pivots around this idea of is prevention the same thing as help? I don't think it exactly is. I think help is something wider and more open than dictating the outcome at the start and I'll stop there. Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, uh, if anyone wishes to speak the question into this recorder, that's fine. I, will, I can always repeat the question if you don't want to, but uh, I'd quite like to capture some of it for those who are willing. That's no pressure for anyone, really, if you don't want your question or the answer, recorded, just say. But there's a lot of experience in this room, and it would be interesting to kind of capture some of that. Yes? Uh, yeah, I,
1: I was very impressed by one statistic you gave, which was 75 to 80% of suicide got nothing and had no contact with mental health. So the whole project of zero suicide is centered on the mental health system.
0: It is quite centered on the mental health system, yes. I have a more
1: serious point, which is the whole category suicide, Mm -hmm. I think needs interrogating. If you think I'm not being perverse, the reverse, killing people, killing someone else, there mm-hmm. are so many meanings to killing someone mm-hmm. And in a way, killing people, killing themselves is almost as varied in its meanings as killing other people. Some is indeed, you may be wanting to lift a burden off your nearest and dearest. Some is out of mm-hmm. guilt and shame, you know, and you go into the room and you shoot the head you know, for mm-hmm. honour. And others is. You know the kid who's being bullied on Facebook and can't handle it. Those are such Mm -hmm. totally different events to me that it seems to me we need to analyse the break down the concept of suicide and have a typology of suicide, if you like, would be a way forward. And I think some of those would be zero preventable, like the teenager committing committing suicide because they're being bullied, Mm -hmm. and others. I don't know, are totally different kinds of event, which
0: don't come under this framework at all. I mean, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. And um, certainly when we do uh, teaching here on, you know, thinking about risks, we do try and come up with at least some things that suggest, you know, about different motivational states, but it's always felt to me as a clinician that actually just that trying to understand the person and what they're offering and what's, you know, what the precise meaning of this is for them has felt absolutely at the heart of it. But so I hadn't really thought about putting it in those terms b- before, actually, in terms of the variation between people, yes. I, I, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just thinking that the, the dialogue
1: around this
2: issue sometimes... Mm. Yeah. avoids kind of addressing the fact that this might be a relief for some individuals and for Mm -hmm. the people around them and i think that's a very taboo and i guess controversial thing to say um but i think there's not enough conversation about about that about that feeling of relief and peace that this can offer
0: Um, would a strongly preventive frame foster that or inhibit it I think I suppose as part of the, the question it yeah. feels to me like it would in, 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 inhibit it yeah well yeah
2: definitely I, I guess I was just wondering what your thoughts are on
0: that well again it's about trying to think about what's you know what's important for people in terms of being able to think of that um individual. it seems simpler in physical health though not entirely simple you know there's still huge ethical dilemmas and big big and passionate disagreements about that um but yes, I think it's important to be open to all those, you know, to all those possibilities and to honour the experience of the person that you're with and trying to help rather than dictating your desired outcome from the start. I mean, it's not my decision to make these, you know, enormous moral judgments for another human being. Um, and that feels quite important. And it does feel if we're sort of dictating what, what's okay at the start, you know, how can I help you to be safe? And that's it. I'm not saying that's not important, but if that's it, then all of this other stuff is closed out, really, or it feels like it's potentially closed out, to me. Mm-hmm. Michael,
1: I was just, you mentioned it earlier on, but I just wondered why there seems to be a more um, even-handed public debate around the right to die uh, for physical health conditions. We see like public um, panorama programs about being, exploring people's lives and why, they're, why there's such a seems
0: to be such snap decisions around mental health. I don't, I'd be interested in other people's views on that. I certainly had an um, occasion where I was interviewed on LBC about this, and I had about 10 minutes notice, again, thanks to Anne, <laughs> who had decided that she wasn't going to do this. And I was pitched in against somebody who had... Um, uh, who was who was from the World Anti-Euthanasia Coalition, and we were talking about a change in the law in Belgium. And I had uh, prepared by reading an article in The New Yorker very quickly, which was quite nuanced and thoughtful, and an article in the, the Daily Mail, which probably wasn't quite as nuanced and thoughtful as that. And all I could think of was, God, this is complicated. This is really so complicated. Now, the guy that they sort of put me against, it wasn't complicated for him at all. It was wrong. It was an absolute wrong, a totally unacceptable. Physical health, mental health, didn't matter. But I'm not quite... That doesn't really go to your question, which is why is that more complicated than mental health? So, Anne, do you want to say? idea about
2: that, which is... and um, I'd be interested in what people think. Um, the idea that suicide is a symptom of mental illness. It's never seen as a symptom of physical <clears throat> illness. But I was very struck years ago hearing a psychiatrist interviewed on the radio about exactly this point, and that was basically his argument, is... Bec- you yeah. know, uh, uh, people who, a lot of people who kill themselves are depressed. Suicidality is a symptom of depression, therefore it is our duty to A, treat the depression, and that in, might include locking people up, and B, um, prevent, <coughs> be, uh, t- there's sort of an assumption that, it, that it's um, illogical in some way that the person, because they are ill, they're not their real selves, uh, and therefore, later on, they won't want the same thing, and it's our responsibility because they are ill to stop them doing it. Um, but uh, there's a whole load of problems with that, I think, with that um, assumption. But nevertheless, I think it's generally an, an unarticulated assumption, a bit like Fiona Malpas was talking about. I would say the main difference is that if you've got terminal cancer or something, there's biological objective um, proof that you're probably going to mm-hmm. die if you've got a mental health diagnosis i think there's always hope yes i,
0: that, I think that's a really good point actually that is a I really think, yeah. really important point why what makes people extremely uncomfortable with this but it is something that does feel like a kind of quite live ethical debate at the moment actually but i think that point is absolutely correct
2: isn't there there's something about um in physical health conditions there's like a there's a point at which often medical professionals can say we've done all that we can mm. and i think that's really hard for us as professionals to reach in mental health settings that we've done all that we can and so i wonder how much of this narrative comes from our own anxieties about us and how we're working and how well we are we're doing with our clients?
0: Probably quite a lot, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a really good point.
2: There's something about life at all costs and that we can't really have a hope for death. Because um, I think some people have a hope about what death might bring and whether we believing in anything after death or not. Some people mm-hmm. do have that belief.
3: Um, well, It's
0: something
2: that's avoided, I think, quite often to talk about, that' it's good-heartening to see the spiritual side, you know, to, to encourage people to talk about what they imagine might happen afterwards,
3: what, what it is mm-hmm. they're hoping for by killing, you know, killing oneself, wanting to
0: kill themselves. So there's a question, thank you. There's yeah. a question here as well. Just I just
3: wanted to back up what Sue said about mm-hmm. the hope. Um, from my own personal experiences of suicide attempts and suicides of people in my family, that when you are suicidal your world is saying to you this is what it's going to be like forever Mm -hmm. you will never get better your hope has gone not looking back what i would have liked to have heard from people is this will pass Mm -hmm. this will pass this is not going to be like this forever because those are some of the key thoughts Mm -hmm. in a person's life at that stage And yes, I I mean, I have really slammed the the mental health services for many years for sectioning me many times. And I now look back and think if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't be alive today, actually. And so for me, there's this this element of yes, I think sanctuary houses are better places than uh, mental health wards. Sanctuary houses where you can go in for three or four days until that's passed that's the way we should be looking at at helping people Mm -hmm. in that
0: so, I mean, that's a very interesting and Just comment on that because I do think it goes right to the heart of this idea of what if we just treated you as having capacity to make a decision because you've made a decision. You're kind of saying that you wouldn't be here mm. today, mm. really. We're going to have to finish off there because I've trespassed on the goodwill of the speakers who are in this room enough. They finished early in order to allow us to come in here. But I would uh, just like to thank everyone for coming along. And if anyone wants to talk further about this, I'm, I'm available to uh, available to, to do so. And we will try and get it out. If you don't want to be your recording to go out as well. Just just let me know and I'll edit it out in the the editing when I do. That probably won't be till January though. Um, So thank you very much everyone. So that was our first public lecture in our new base. We're hoping to have more as the months go on and I'm going to try and persuade my colleagues to submit to being recorded so we can put those lectures on this feed too. We've put links to some of the things mentioned in the podcast on the show page on our blog, discursive of Tunbridge Wells, so please take a look at that. The best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe. You can do that on iTunes or SoundCloud or really wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Discussions in Tunbridge Wells. We also post all podcasts on our blog. As well as that, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook at CCCU. A-triple-P-S-Y, that's C-C-C-U-A-P-S-I. We have a number of shows planned for 2018, so keep an eye out for those. Many thanks for listening and we'll be back soon.